0: Well, good morning to everyone, and glad you're here, and hope you enjoy being with the fellowship. And uh, something we sort of do unique here is I hand out my notes. Some people like it, some people like to just listen, and they don't want the notes, but uh, I hope I printed enough up today, for everybody to have one, but... Um, Anyway, if you enjoy that, and those at home online, we email them out. If if you're not on our email list, go to our website, and we'll get you plugged right in, and so you get the updates of what's happening here in the church, as well as the the notes and so forth. And uh, we're working our way through the book of Philippians. And we come to the end of chapter 3 today, but just by reminder, this is Paul at the end of his second missionary journey And uh, he goes to Philippi out in the woods by the river. It was where Jews met and he preached the gospel first. And there were mainly women who actually from Asia Minor where the Lord shut the door for Paul to preach. And so that's mainly what it was, was a Jewish church out by the river at first. But then an extraordinary thing happened where they end up beating Paul (laughs) For preaching the gospel, he was thrown into prison, and him and Silas at about midnight to begin to worship and praise the Lord, and all the chains were let go, and all the prison doors were open, and the guard was going to kill himself, because, boy, you don't want to get in trouble for letting all the prisoners go, and Paul said, do yourself no harm, and uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, and everybody in your house can be saved. And so... That was the beginning of the Gentile church. Quite an extraordinary story. But as time went on, Paul ended up in prison. And only the church in Philippi sent financial aid to him, probably regularly, which was greatly needed. And he wanted to write a letter to thank them for that. But he also just wanted to write a letter to encourage the believers in Philippi, and of course, the letter would be spread throughout all the other churches to encourage all the believers as well. And uh, Paul made it clear, as he has made a shift in this letter in chapter 3, that there is a way of thinking that every Christian should eventually get there. And that is of a perfect mind, he would call it the same word, Uh, in the Greek, is mature mind. And he says this in verse 14 through 16, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you've already attained, Let us walk. Keep moving forward. Don't set still and start moving backwards. At least walk, even if it's a slow, snell pace. Walk, move forward. By the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And so Paul, before that says, I I, want to grab a hold of what God grabbed a hold of me for. My goal is to have the power of the resurrection. And I know that won't come unless my death to Paul comes. So I also want to be intimate in his sufferings and I want to be conformed to death to myself that I might have life for others. That's the mature mind. Paul goes on to tell them in verse 17 through 19, brethren, join in following my example. This example was very close to Jesus' example. And there's others, note those who so walk. As you have us, me and others like me, For a pattern, verse 18, for many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping. They are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These enemies of the cross, Paul had talked about them in the first part of chapter three, the Judaizers, the legalists. And they We're telling them, uh, yeah, you can believe in Jesus by faith, and yeah, his cross took your sins away, but you also got to get circumcised and get on the Jewish diet, and you got to keep these laws and those laws. And Paul, back in Acts 15, brought those guys back to Jerusalem. They had a a council meeting, and, and Peter said, hey, this is absolutely wrong. They're enemies of the cross. What what do they do? They want to put your eyes on you. Am I righteous? Am I holy? Am am I being what I need to be to do my part in salvation? You see, salvation's not 99% Jesus and 1% you, or 10% you, or any percent you. Salvation is a gift of God. And they were adding to that. Always, the enemies of the cross, they first want to always minimize Jesus. He's Michael the archangel or a God of many gods. He's the son of God, but he's not the real God. They always want to minimize him. But we learned in Philippians here that it's the Father's will that every knee would bow every time we confess that Jesus is Lord and the greatest authority of all is Jesus. They want to minimize him. When you're taking your eyes off of Jesus, you'll find with most of these people that minimize Jesus, they always focus on the organization. If you're right with the organization, then you're right with God. If you're not right with the organization, then you're not right with God. you got to be right with the Catholic Church you got to be right with the Mormon church. you got to be right with the Jehovah Witness church. It's eyes upon us. What are you doing as a Jehovah Witness? What are you doing as a Mormon? What are you eating? What are you drinking? And then they always minimize the cross. This is always the point. I, I loved the songs today. I, I, I don't think Mike knew about it. But we've been focusing on the cross. Because... That is the single most important fact of history. All of history is broken down before the cross and after the cross. And we understand that the cross did it all. Jesus on the cross said what? It is finished. And I love that song. I'd never thought of that. The veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies to the rest of the temple was ripped down while he was still on the cross. He had breathed his last. He had died and the veil was ripped down, signifying that we have direct access now to God. No more temple, no more priesthood, no more mediators. We have one mediator. And that's the one who came in human flesh, God Almighty, and lived and died for us. So there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, or the human, I should say. We looked at several of these passages, and in Galatians, and Hebrews, they had the same issues. And you guys might remember Paul in Galatians 1, 6-9 said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace, in the grace of Christ. To a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. He said, right before that, they preached a different Jesus, and now they're preaching a different gospel. He says, Let such people be accursed. In the Greek is the word anathema, damned to the lowest part of hell. And he says in verse nine of Galatians one, if we said before, so I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, than what you have received, let him be a curse. And you can see as, as the letter of Galatia matures, it's about the cross. It's about Christ and about cross, minimizing Christ, minimizing the cross. In Galatians five, verse 11, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, they were actually Going around saying, oh, no, no, Paul wants everybody to get circumcised. That's why we're the, we're the follow-up team. Yeah, but I know Paul didn't tell you to get circumcised. That's our job. Uh, we're the follow-up team. But this is what Paul wants. And Paul said, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? The, what that? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. It's offensive because the cross says that we are sinners with a capital S that we were wicked, damned by the wrath, the righteous wrath of God to, to burn in hell. And the cross talks of torture. It talks of insane pain and suffering because our sins are so great. And he goes on to say in, in Galatians six twelve, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh... Getting, circumcising people, getting them onto a diet and so forth. These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer the persecution of what? For the cross of Christ. In Galatians 6, 14, for God forbid that I should boast except in what? The cross of our, and I love this, Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember in 1 Corinthians the same issue was there. And and Paul lays down the gospel. He's saying don't he says I'm afraid for you that you're going to lead the simplicity that's in Christ for a different Jesus. You're going to be deceived, just like the serpent deceived Eve. And, and he goes, I want you to understand that this is the gospel I delivered to you. It hasn't changed. I can say it in almost one breath. Number one, Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, Isaiah 53. Right? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced through because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being, the crucifixion, fell upon him. By his stripes we healed. Here's the first point. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. Number two, he was buried. Simple enough. Number three, he rose again on the third day and once and again According to the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, Jesus said, Look at Jonah. Jonah's a story that, that explains that I'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth as he was in the belly of the fish. As the scriptures say, that's it. That's, that's, we don't add any fourth line, we don't add a fifth line. We don't say, And, you know, make sure you pray at least four times a day. Muslims do five, but, you know, we're under grace, just four times a day for you. And don't forget, you got to give money and go to church and and there's no end. This is why the gospel is good news. Because it's all focused on Christ. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. Do you, do you see where you're at in this equation? Nowhere. Because salvation's a gift of God. It's not of yourself, not of your past self, not of your present self, not of your future self. It's not of your works, not of your past works, your present works, your future works. Works don't unsave you, and works don't save you. Yourself doesn't save you, yourself doesn't unsave you. Paul says in Romans 8 neither things present nor things to come will separate you. From the love of God. This is why it's so important. And, and notice he, the Corinthians, they, they were being taught by some amazing teachers like Apollos and Peter, but yet they didn't get the most important point. And that is to the human mind, the gospel message seems foolish. And so they were saying, "Ah, when I go tell people Christ died for your sins on the cross, it, it just, it's sort of gory. I, I remember years ago in college, I, would, I, I delivered prescription drugs there in, in the Point Loma area. There was a season I was a drug dealer, yes. And uh, <laughs> I remember witnessing this one little old lady, I found out later she was a Mormon, but I just said, can I tell you that Christ died for your sins on the cross And paid for them because he loved you. And she says, oh, you're such a young man with such a tragic view of life. I remember just as a young man going, ah. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians one eighteen? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul doesn't just end there. Notice in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 25. For since the kingdom of the, since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the what? Foolish message preached to they save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ what? crucified to the Jews as a stumbling block to the Greeks as foolishness you what do you mean he had to die on the cross i'm i'm a good person i keep the law i'm kosher <laughs> you know it's a stumbling block that that salvation could be gained so simply when judaism has given him 613 laws that they have to follow and you pretty much got to focus on a full time to even come close to keeping all those laws and of course nobody can But he goes on in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to say, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined to know anything among you except two things. What are they? Jesus Christ, Yahshua, our salvation, Christ the Messiah. And what? Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear. In my trembling, my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power. Love verse 5. That your works should not. Is that what it says? No. That your faith should not be. In the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you understand? Judaizers and legalists and people preaching a different gospel say, get your eyes on yourself. You should be afraid to fall in the hands of the living God. You're not holy enough. You're not pure enough. You're not praying enough. You're not living the life close enough to the way the Lord would want somebody who's calling himself a Christian to live. And and what do they do? Just like Satan trying to dent our helmet of salvation. We got to get our shield of faith and, and say, it never, God never said it was of myself. Matter of fact, he said, it's not of myself. He made it clear it's a gift of God. If you go to somebody's birthday party and say, hey, I got a present. I spent 50 bucks. Can you give me $10 back? I didn't mean to spend, you know. Or or tell them, before I give you this gift, I won't give it to you unless you do one jumping jack. There's really no effort in that, but they're going, it's a gift or it's not a gift. A jumping jack, Well, I'm not going to do a jumping jack. I'm going to go take it back. You, You see, a gift has no strings attached or it's not a gift. A gift can't have strings saying, well, I'm giving you a $50 birthday present. My birthday's next month. You know what you need to do, don't you? If there's that underlining current, the gift is not a gift, is it? It's a big yuck. It's, it's a disgusting thing. And what does the Bible tell us about the nature of God in Romans 11? When God gives gifts, he never takes them back. Romans 11 says the gifts in the calling of God are irrevocable So our salvation is kept by the power of God. And so this is so important that we understand the legalist wants to focus on our righteousness. Where the gospel focuses only on Jesus's righteousness, right? And you know the best you can produce a righteousness compared to God's righteousness is filthy rags, That's the best you can ever do. Not that we don't want to seek God first and and his righteousness. This is a part of the maturing mind. The maturing mind wants to take up the cross daily, crucify our flesh with his passions desires, and to live a holy life, to be a fruitful person, to to live and walk as Christ. That's that's maturity. But it's not so I make sure I don't get un that I make sure that I'm doing my part to get me saved. It's got to be a love. If it's not of love, it profits you nothing. As it, a matter of fact, it's annoying. It's like a symbol in somebody's ear, or somebody blasting a trumpet in your face. But if it's of love, wow, then that's great. And that's what we have with Christ. So all the good works. If you're here today at church because you want to not get blackballed by God or don't want to you know, prove yourself not to be a Christian so you came, that's just, it's just horrible. I'm glad you're here, but it's going to profit you nothing at the end unless you have the absolute confidence that salvation is yours and cannot be undone. Again, it's focusing on our power rather than God's power. The legalist folks on our works. We focus on only the work of Christ. Remember in John 6, Jesus said, this is the Father's will for your life and work. They said, well, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. There's one work. And that's to believe on him whom God has sent. And if you believe on him, whom God has sent, you shall have eternal life. No small print, no footnotes, no qualifying statements. You believe on him whom God sent, you shall have eternal life. Maybe when we take a look at your works down the road, when we take and analyze your righteousness to see if you really had true saving faith. We We need to look at the quality of your faith, the quantity of your faith, the truthfulness of your faith, No, God doesn't do that. What does it say? That you shall not perish, you shall have everlasting life to everyone who believes. Do you think some people's faith at the beginning is greater than other people's faith? I think so. Do some people believe in Christ for salvation and they have a lot of knowledge of the Bible? Yes. Are there others like the thief on the cross that they didn't really know much at all about Jesus? I mean, it's it's really amazing. He didn't know he was virgin born. He didn't know he was the second person of the Trinity. He didn't know, probably didn't understand that he was even the son of God. He was God in human flesh. That thief on the cross, he didn't understand any of that. But today, he is in heaven with the Lord because everyone who believes has eternal life. And again, it focuses on our faithfulness rather than Christ's faithfulness. What about our faithlessness? He says, if we are faithless, somehow in our Christian walk, we, get, we go through a hard valley and then another hard valley, and then we go through a hard time and another hard time. Does that ever happen to anybody? And, and, and your faith can't keep up with your life experiences and you lose your faith. Your faith Lus he remains faithful. That's his very nature. His nature is, everybody who believes in him, he grabs a hold of you and never lets you go. Everybody who comes into him, he grabs a hold of them, writes their name in the book of life. they shall not perish. He shall raise them up on the last day. And again, the legalist wants our focus. To be on us keeping ourselves. Calvinists have got it dead wrong. The perseverance of the saints. In essence, they're saying, as long as you are living the Christian life the way we think a Christian ought to be lived, you're saved. The day or the weeks or the months or the years, you don't do that. Well, that showed us that you never had true saving faith to begin with. Ridiculous. John three sixteen. you never rejoice in it. You're always flapping in the wind. You know, there was a a story of a a lady in her junior high years radically gave her life to the Lord. And she was a a dynamic Christian through high school and college. After she graduated from college, she got in a horrible wreck. And they thought she was going to die. Her body was pretty well mangled, a lot of pain. She ended up getting on medication Went through several years of, of basically being doped up all the time and then couldn't afford the medication. And so she learned that you can take heroin to replace the pain medication. She ended up getting hooked on heroin and end up dying of an overdose. The last five years of her life was drugs until she OD'd. So if you were a Calvinist, you're like, man, she should have died in that wreck. Then I can know she's going to heaven. But those last five years of her life, mm-mm, no, she didn't persist. Is that true, guys? It's just, it's, it's diabolically satanic and wrong. God keeps us by his power. Well, that's the end of the introduction. Um, <laughs> you know, last week I had some things on my heart and, and uh, I deviated a bit on purpose No regrets, but this week in the same way. But now we're going to finish up chapter three in verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we are also eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. I like the old King James, vile body. Doesn't that sound better? Our vile body. That it may be conformed. The the King James, Old King James says um, to to be, uh, I'll I'll get there in a minute. What's that? Transformed. It, It actually doesn't. It says fashioned. There it is. That we would be fashioned, fashioned into his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Let's break this down in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. People in Philippi were very proud to be a Roman, citizen, uh, a, a Roman city. They were very much one of the fashions of Rome, one of the latest things of Rome, one of the latest colors and perfumes and whatever it is that you, you saw in Rome you would see in Philippi, and they were very proud of being connected to Rome. Barclay, in his commentary, says this, We have our home in heaven, and here on earth we are a colony of heaven citizens. Paul is saying, just as the Rome colonists never forgot they were belonged to Rome, you must never forget that you are citizens of heaven. Your conduct must match your citizenship, very much so. Should, your life on earth should make it clear that we are pilgrims and strangers. Isn't that the way we would be on earth if we weren't really citizens of this earth? Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16. The men of faith, all of them had this heart. These all died in faith. Listen, not having received the promises. Go through the list. Abraham Never saw kids as many as the stars of the heaven in his lifetime. Moses never saw the people successfully get into the promised land, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Isn't that radical? For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. These guys said, I'm a pilgrim and stranger here. I'm a citizen of heaven, not on earth. This is just a bus stop. That's it. Life is a vapor, right? It's like we're at a bus stop waiting for the bus to show up. It's like, oh man, it's a little late. It's four minutes. Boop, there's the bus. Let's go. That's about how long life is, isn't it? We're not sitting at that bus stop. Oh, let's paint it. Let's put some pictures up. Oh, let's get a nice carpet on our bus stop. If you're not comfortable at the bus stop, it's okay. I'm just here a couple of minutes. In Psalms 84 verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on what? Pilgrimage. I love that. We're just pilgrims. We're strangers. We're just on our way out. (laughs) Did you get here? I just got here, but I'm on my way out. Did you know also why we're here this very short time? We're ambassadors in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. I remember reading a book about Billy Graham and almost every president offered him to run for Senate, Congress, be on his cabinet, or be an ambassador. And every time, Billy Graham said, why would I want a lesser position? (laughs) I I don't represent a country. I represent God. I'm an ambassador right here on earth. And so what do we need to do to to make this practically real? We need to set our minds not on earthly things, but on heavenlies. So there's a twofold thing. We often find ourselves, because earth is in our face every day, isn't it? And all the pleasures and all of the toys and whistles and bings and vibrations and it's all happening nonstop. I admit I am addicted to looking at my text and my emails. I, I'm sure you know the psychologist got a hold of me. He would uh, write a book on it. I am as addicted to everybody else All the bzz, ding. hold it! I haven't looked at my emails. Oh yeah, I did just look at them two seconds ago, but I'm forgot. So, first of all, we have to disconnect from earth. It's a hard thing. But we can't let the earth drag us down like a weight. And then we've got to now focus on heaven, on Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, of all the glorious mercy and grace and forgiveness that we get daily from heaven. Right? This is being said in contrast to verse 18 and 19. Remember, we just read verse 18 and 19. Paul says, I'm weeping that many now are enemies of the cross. So what did he say? Four different things in verse 19. Whose end is destruction. But our end is what? Eternal life in heaven with Christ, whose God is their belly. They're focused on their dietary thing. You know, we've never probably lived in that way. Where you're trying to make sure if the meat wasn't strangled or wasn't sacrificed to an idol. Or the the meat was prepared in a certain kosher way. And and did Gentiles that are unclean non-believers touch those vegetables before you bought them? I imagine when you go to a church where a big part of your righteousness is based on what you eat, how do you prepare it, and how you eat it, and and so forth, that's probably a big part of the discussion, isn't it? I'm pretty much every day thinking about where can I get enough kosher meat? Where can I get enough meat that wasn't sacrificed to the idols or was not drained properly? I need to find those kind of people. And and then God is their belly. They're thinking all the time about what to eat and what to not touch. and what, you know. But our focus is on the bread of life, Jesus, not a kosher diet. Their glory is in their shame. Our glory is in a daily attempt to live holy and pure and to follow Jesus. We, they set their mind on earthly things. We have our mind on heaven Paul says it clearly in Colossians 3. If then we have been raised with Christ, or since, the word if is often in the New Testament, it should be translated in our modern way of thinking, since. Since then we've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Get your eyes higher. Well, oh, I'm looking at the horizon. No, not high enough. Oh, I'm looking at Venus. No, no, Saturn, no, Mars, no all the way, all the way, nothing's higher than seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For if you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ who is our life appears, you also may appear with him in glory. Verse John 3, we know that passage well, don't we? In verse 2 and 3, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, again, this is in the Greek, the, the, the word hope is confidence, a certainty. Everyone who has a certainty in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Did you know that? By thinking about heaven and our new body and streets of gold and setting with Christ on his throne with him and and you know the angels being there and the the elders 24 elders casting their crowns before the glassy sea all these things it purifies us you know almost all of that is in the book of revelation and you know what it says if you will study the book of bless of revelation there is a unique and special blessing from god for just waiting through those difficult prophecies. And interesting, here he says, when you go through Revelation, I'll tell you, you're, you're gonna be thinking about these things all the time. And there's a purifying effect. And then also we, we go on and it says, for which you eagerly wait for the Savior. I love that. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our Savior? Lord. His, his title, his position He is the Lord of all, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus, Yahshua, our salvation. Christ, the anointed one to save us. The greatest of authority came to be our salvation. He was appointed by the Father to be our salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 11, talking about the rapture, he says, hey, when you think about the rapture, it should be a joyful thing. I find all the time that Christians, again, part of it is they've been told there's fine print with John 3.16, your salvation may not have been real stuff. Your faith may not have been a good enough stuff. You, you didn't have you had faith, but you didn't have real saving faith. And we know that now because you've been struggling this last year. And, and when they think about the returning of the Lord, what happens? They don't, oh my goodness, I hope not. I hope not. Give me a couple of weeks to get better and then I'll, then he can come back. It should never be that way. We, we've been studying on Wednesday nights and we just saw in chapter 19, Lot, <laughs> Abraham saying, would you destroy it? 50 people righteous in the city? Sodom and Gomorrah, would you try? He gets down to 10 thinking, you know, he has several daughters and sons and sons-in-laws. But he could ask if there was one righteous, would there end up only being one righteous Lot? Would you destroy it? And what did the angel say? I I can't do anything. God told me to destroy this place and I cannot touch this city till you are out of here. And he grabs him by the hand and starts dragging him out because I can't punish the wicked until the righteous are out of there. And we talked about this. Lot had no practical righteousness. When they wanted to rape the angels, he says, here, take my daughters, do whatever you want to them. Dad, I should have cleaned your room better. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking. It was just wicked. And then later, his wives get him drunk. They know, hey, dad, get him the right kind of wine. He'll get drunk every time. And they had sex with their own dad, which is gross. And then 2 Peter 2 says he was a righteous man. Surprise to us. Because God sees righteousness positionally, that which happens in the heart. Right, And so he saw that he had, the same, he had faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had the, at least the faith of Abraham, the, the God of Abraham. Practical, he will have no rewards in heaven. But nevertheless, we see in such a case where it's sort of like, hey, you know, I can make an exception because Lot, you're not living a very good life. Go ahead, blow the place up. Lot, sorry about that. Um, no, even that man who had no earthly righteousness attributed to him. But yet, the fact that he was declared righteous, God had to get him out of that place before he could touch it. So in First Thessalonians 5, 9, 10, and 11, it says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we we're awake or asleep, we should live together with him, therefore comfort each other, and edify one another just as you are doing. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, for I am already being poured as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. He's getting ready to be beheaded by Nero. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, listen, but also to all who live a righteous and holy, perfect life. It doesn't say that, right? Who else is going to get this crown of righteousness? Those who just love his appearing. (laughs) They're walking by faith, right? If you love the Lord's appearing, it's because your eyes are not on yourself and your lack of righteousness. I'm looking at Christ who is perfect in righteousness and he's given me. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become right now righteous. I look in the mirror, I don't see righteousness. God who can see not just my outward man, but see my heart. He sees perfect righteousness. Therefore, comfort each other with these words. Be excited about the Lord. There's not a better verse on this than Titus 2.13. Looking for the blessed hope and the what? glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, a blessed confidence, a glorious appearing, and we will be with him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yet well pleased, rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. He didn't say, I am a little leery, I hope I qualify. I hope God can overlook some of my sinful things, especially these last, you know, eight years being in prison has been really hard on my body. And, you know, I I haven't been, you know, the kind of person I want to be, but I I hope that when he appears, you know, I'm on the right side of things. You you don't find this, guys, in the Bible. You find absolute certainty because it's a gift of God. And therefore we can get our eyes on heaven God's always smiling us. We can go boldly into his throne of grace. We always get all the mercy and grace we have. This is why we have a gospel, means good news. We have a glorious gospel about Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his work, his burial, his resurrection. Get your eyes on the work of Christ and you will have a joyful thoughts of his return In Philippians 3.21, who will transform our lowly body, our vile body, that it may be conformed into this glorious body, fashioned into a glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to do all things to himself. This vile body, that word in the Greek also can mean lowly body or body of humiliation, body of depression, Anybody ever get depressed about your body? Anybody ever feel humiliated by your body? Boy, did they hit it. And then the word transformed or be made fashioned, it's interesting that the Greek word is jointly conformed or formed in the same way as another. Boy, that's exactly it. We're not looking for a body, we're looking for the same body that Christ has. Isn't that amazing? We are gonna be perfect in righteousness and as the father looks at us, he sees the exact same righteousness as Christ. Yes, I I have a bad taste in my mouth. I I feel like it's hard to imagine that, that, that Christ is giving us his exact righteousness. We're so unworthy. This is why they bowed before the throne and took their crowns, probably the crown of righteousness, and threw it before the throne. Going, I'm not worthy. You alone are worthy. Interesting, this word transformed, fashioned jointly, fashioned into the same form as another. Only one other place in the Bible is it used. And that's in Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? There it is, conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Christ's resurrection from the dead is exactly what's going to happen with us identically. Yes, we're not worthy, but not, it's not only spiritually are we going to be like Christ, but we're also going to be in a new body like Christ. I mean, I understood when I raise from the dead, I'm going to be spiritually like Christ. But I'm going to have a glorified body like Christ. Paul talks about this in great deal detail. You have to read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to come close to it, but not really. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42 to 49, let's take that section first. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, we know about that, and there is a spiritual body. We're excited about that. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a living, life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Afterwards, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, also are those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. And as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. I remember years ago, uh, Chuck tells a story when he was a camp counselor as a, as a, in his 20s and this kid got injured and, and he goes, hey, are you okay? And he goes, oh, I'm just so mad at Adam right now. It's like, oh yeah, theologically you got that right. <laughs> we have the exact fallen nature of Adam. And, uh, and so Adam's choice doomed all of us to this suffering body that leads eventually to physical death. But how much more Christ? If Adam, a man, could affect us on the earth to that degree, how much more is Christ, the second Adam, going to affect us in heaven? This is the point. Going on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 54. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Makes sense. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's a great uh, uh, verse to put in the nursery, right? And Anyway, verse 52. In a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound. The dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. So there's two comings of Christ. The first one is the rapture, and everybody who is already dead is present with the Lord, but they're not in their new body. Interesting, they're in some kind of temporary body, but they're with the Lord. But the graduation day happens with everybody. So they're waiting us, and at the rapture We all get our new bodies at the same time. We all walk through the graduation line together. So all the way back to the first person who believed under righteousness and to the last person. And and maybe one of you guys get saved here today or somebody listening on live stream and gets saved today. That's the last person. We'll immediately all get raptured out of here. And so verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall we be brought to pass the saying which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. We know that's true, right? Just like Jesus tried to comfort uh, Mary and Martha. Hey, this isn't bad news, guys. Because he is going to rise again on the, in the resurrection I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And then the final here statement today, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself, which will be in the second coming, we all come with him at the end of the tribulation period. And there is the final subjection to planet earth. But it's interesting when we follow the breadcrumbs on this. We go back to Psalms 110 verse 1 and David writes this Psalm saying, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Remember Jesus had a big teaching. Who is David talking about that? Oh yeah, he's mentioning his son. So he said his son's going to be greater. And the father is going to put all things under his feet. Who is he talking about? Boy, those Pharisees had no idea what to do with that. But we know, Jesus said this, quoted this in Matthew twenty-two forty-four. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Where is Jesus right now? At the right hand of the Father. But notice Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till their enemies were are made his footstool. But in Hebrews 2, 8, he says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. Listen to the last phrase of verse 8. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Why? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us in verse 25 to 28, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy is what? That we he will destroy is death. For he has put all things under his feet. And when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. That God may be all in all. What a fabulous passage. It took us three weeks to get through it. But what did we learn? Be imitators of Christ. Paul's example, others' example who follow that follow Christ in the same way. Be aware of the enemies of the cross. You sometimes are your own worst enemy. Listening to the doctrines of the demons rather than the word of God, listening to the, the natural man in your own mind, tell you what the spiritual truth is. No, don't minimize Christ. Don't minimize the work of the cross. Don't minimize grace, the salvation by grace as a gift from God. The third thing, let's look for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a powerful thing if we live as pilgrims and strangers. It purifies us. Final two verses here. In John, John 14, Jesus tried to get their eyes on the things above. He said, let your heart not be, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I love verse three. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself. And what? Where I am, there you may be also. That's heaven, guys. I don't care if heaven is is the Mojave Desert. As long as Jesus is there, it's heaven, right? And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Amen. We do know that. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that you also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. He had just said, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, that they be in us and we be in them in a perfect unity. And I don't just pray for them. I pray for all of them who believe through their word. And then he says this, Father, I desire that they also, that was including us, that you gave to me, not just those at that time, but throughout history before his rapture, the the, the rapture of the church that they may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundations of the world. Lord, we thank you for your word today and we ask that faith would come by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You told Timothy to give himself to the public reading of scripture and so we have today. Many, many verses have been read to strengthen our faith Let the seeds go in. Let water fall upon those already planted seeds. And cause all of us to be washed and cleaned in the water of your word today, set so focused upon you, Jesus, that we are purified even as we hear these words of truth today. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Christ, it's that simple. The Bible says as many as receive him, receive Jesus as your savior, as many as believe in him, as many who trust in him, Jesus made it as clear just looking at him on the cross and believing that his cross has conquered your sin is enough. Jesus, I look to you today, and I trust you as my savior. Come into my heart, be the Lord of my life. And now, Lord, I want to walk in the walk unto maturity. I want to grab a hold of what you grabbed a hold of me for. I want to have that resurrection power, which is accompanied with denying myself and taking up a cross. I am willing, Lord. Whatever you say, whenever you say it, however you say it, for all you who are mature here today, don't give God any guidelines. God, I don't care what it means to have your full, perfect will. I don't care about the suffering, the pain, the hardship. I don't care how heavy the load. I don't care to what degree I need to crucify my flesh with a passionate desire. I don't know. I don't care what it means to lose my life in this world. Lord, no boundaries for me to live as Christ, period to die his gain, which I'm very excited about. But Lord, I want to be faithful to the last word, to the last hug, to the last smile, to the last love, to the last touch. I want to say I'll be, I'll do all you would have for your glorious kingdom. Give us that mature heart, mature mind, mature thoughts. As Paul's example gives us, let it so be worked in our soul as well. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.